This is an ABC podcast. G'day, I'm Ann Jones, and this is Off Track, the ABC's nature program. This is one that I recorded about this time last year, actually, in the dead of winter, when these monsters of the Murray are out and about and at their most active. Take a listen to this. Most people probably have heard of a Murray Cray before, but may not have seen them. And they've historically been under the water when people are skiing over summer times or on houseboats and, and just going about their business. Definitely they're a lot more abundant and more broadly distributed in the old days when populations were a lot more healthy then. And I guess it's symptomatic of changes to the river that those old days had good flows and good conditions and then obviously things have changed in the, in the last hundred years or so and they're not as abundant and people have less, less of a connection perhaps to the species and to the river these days. But once you've seen them, you never forget them. They're really impressive looking animals. I've heard that some people call them unicorns of the Murray River. They're spiny crayfish, sometimes called Murray Cray. And they were once found the entire length of the Murray and the Murrumbidgee Rivers. Now they're locally extinct across large swathes of the catchment. I'm Ann Jones and on Off Track this episode we're at the intersection of the Murray River and the Goulburn River near Echuca in Victoria. Nick. Hi, how are you going? Good to see you. Likewise. All right, come and show me. Is this where we're going to release them? Yep. And this is Dr Nick Whiterod, aquatic ecologist with the Nature Glenelg Trust. He's one of the people in charge of today's extraordinary project, reintroducing crays into this stretch of river where they haven't been seen for years. What made you choose this location? It's where they used to occur. There's good flow through here. There's good habitat. There's, the snags are good habitat. There's good... Um, bank structure where they can burrow into, good vegetation along the banks as well. Um, yeah, so a combination of things really. So which way is this water flowing? Because it's sort of like, I can see all these eddies and... Yeah, so it's, it's a bit of an interesting spot. It does almost look like it's flowing backwards, doesn't it? <laughs> but Nick Whiterod isn't in this alone. Hello, Ann. On site today are New South Wales Fisheries staff members and also Carl Mathers, South West representative on the Recreational Fishing New South Wales Advisory Council, and he grew up fishing Murray Cray. What does the river mean to you? It's been part of our fabric since I was born and for two or three generations before that. We've grown up on the Riverine Plains fishing. It's, it's a major part of the way we were brought up uh, and also the way we're bringing our children up. Uh, born and bred about 100 kilometres north of here in the middle of the Edward Walkool system. And, uh, we did have the, the regular winter camping trips out to, to catch crays. It generally involves bait collection, so that's either the lazy man's trip to the butcher shop for some <laughs> ox livers or the trusty European carp, which hopefully we'll, we'll see the back of soon. But uh, yeah, bait collection and then the gathering of the gear and 
generally a big chainsaw because you need a lot of wood this time of year to keep warm. <laughs> so can you remember like the first time that you saw a Murray Cree? Uh, it would have been young and it would have come with a stern warning not to put your fingers near that uh, from my father. Yeah, certainly an iconic species. We're gathered at this point on the Murray because it is an area now devoid of crays. After monitoring the area, today translocated crays are going to be released into the water. They've been caught upstream and transported down here in an esky. So is, are they the crays in there? Yep. Oh. <laughs> They've got their mighty white claws banded so they don't kill each other in the esky, but you can hear the movement of their spiny bits against the plastic and each other and the sections of their hard shells squealing very quietly as they move. basically a yabby on steroids. Nick Whiterod again. They're a prehistoric looking creature, so they've got beautiful white claws that look pretty imposing and that's the main form of defence. Um, and then they've got sort of a brownish coloured body and spines all over the body. Yeah, and they, they are in a different family though than yabbies, aren't they? And they're in a different family than marin as well. Yeah, that's right. They've also got a different life history. So yabbies are summer active, so you'll see them during the summer months, particularly during flood years. They're faster growing, they reach maturity within a year and they only live for about four or five years. So they've got that boom and bust life cycle, whereas Murray crayfish are the long-lived. They might live for 25 to 30 years. They reach maturity at about seven or eight years and they're really slow growing. So obviously yabbies can respond to environmental change pretty quickly, whereas the Murray crays take a lot longer to respond to those changes and recover from any impacts that might occur. This incredible, decades-long life all starts with, frankly, a quite surprising postcoital manoeuvre from the female cray. It all starts by <laughs> when two crays like each other. No. <laughs> so that the male um, flips the female onto her back and just deposits a little sperm package, it's called, and, and then the male scuttles off and his job's done. The female will get on her, basically on her tail and stand vertical and the sperm will go down into a cup tail and then she'll deposit her eggs into there and then she's got little swimmerettes that move, move it all around and fertilise the eggs and then those swimmerettes, she attaches the eggs to them so that's, they keep the eggs under their tail so the female are quite protective once they've got the fertilised eggs. So they mate with underbellies towards each other. I think you could possibly call it missionary style. And then afterwards, the female stands up on the end of her tail and in the cup that she forms with her little tail fins, she performs what I can only describe as a mixmaster manoeuvre, fertilising her eggs with the sperm packet and attaching those fertilised eggs to her underparts with her surprisingly dexterous legs. It's like rhythmic gymnastics in the mud on the bottom of the Murray River. The eggs pretty well stay there for the next four or five months, developing under her tail. They've got quite strong muscles to hold that tail shut so the eggs don't dislodge and, and get damaged or anything like that. And um, Wait, so she could have how many under there at one time? It varies. So the larger ones were probably talking almost 2,000 eggs under there and 2,000 
larvae or juveniles and they fully formed and they're sort of moving around a little bit and that's when she probably tells them it's time to get out, I want a break or something like that. Wow, what a trooper. They don't mature for ages. What, what happens? What's the rest of the life cycle? Well, it, it's essentially grow, growing. So they'll, they'll grow through molt. So they'll be in their little tough exoskeleton. It'll get a little bit too squeezy. And so they'll molt that shell off. They'll start forming a new shell underneath, the softer one. Then they'll break through the outside shell and then they'll just grow into that. The shell will expand slightly. And in the first couple of years of life, they might molt 10 times and slowly grow like that. And then once they get to probably five or six years old, then it's pretty well an annual molt. Given that they can live for decades, you can imagine that the crays have pretty ingenious strategies to deal with the harsh Australian environmental conditions. Crays have, have developed a behavioural strategy to avoid poor water quality. They get out of the water so they can climb up onto the bank and as long as obviously nothing gets them or the, the air temperature is not too high, they can survive up there for a couple of hours for a while, then they just get back into the water, submerge themselves, wet their gills and then they can get back out. But that's just a short-term strategy. What happens if the event that you're trying to escape in the water goes on for months and months and months? Did you see that? These local fishermen say they've seen crays and they were crawling up out of the water just like Nick Whiterod described. It was after the Millennium Drought, which was a devastating eight-year dry event from 2001 onwards in Australia. Hardly any water had been getting through to the Murray Mouth at all. But it wasn't the dry that was the major blow to the craze. It was the rains that followed. Nick Whiterod. Once the flooding came back in late 2010, 2011, a lot of the floodplain areas got inundated and some of these areas hadn't been inundated for up to 10, 20 years. Leaf litter on the bank had accumulated and then when those big floods occurred, uh, microbes are breaking down the leaf litter and it's stripping oxygen from the water and that's essentially what black water is. So it's water that comes off the floodplain, low oxygen levels and it comes back into the main channel and lowers the oxygen concentration in the main river. Blackwater events occur naturally, but this one was of a much larger scale. The Blackwater event lasted for six months in some areas, and it was pretty well 1,800 kilometres of the Murray River was impacted, and it was over summer, so temperatures might have been 35 to 40 degrees. This is the time in summer when they're not active, so they're climbing out, they're a bit lethargic. Foxes, you've got... There are reports of people coming down and grabbing them off trees. But in terms of blackwater events, it's probably, it could be the, the largest one in recorded history in, in the world, essentially. So that kind of impact on a species that we estimated was probably down to about, for the Murray River, down to about 50% of its natural range before that event occurred. And then you've got this large event sort of had a really significant impact on the populations. Is there any quantifiable research from before and after that Blackwater event that can tell you the effect on the cray population? Yes, there is. So 
fortunately a PhD student Sylvia Zakowski was doing her studies on the species before the Blackwater event related to the impacts of recreational fishing but she went out four months before the Blackwater so we had a really good pre-data set to compare impacts after the event and then we went back again in 2012 and unfortunately we showed an 81% reduction in numbers across the impacted areas. I guess it's worth noting that before that Blackwater event populations were already down by about 50% across in terms of the range of the species in the in the Murray River so it's coming that gradual decline and then a big whack at in one go, it's sort of had a, a really bad impact on them. Like really, yeah. Climb trees to get out of the yeah. water. Yeah. Yeah. Did you see that? Yeah. Back in the shallows. Yeah. So we've been monitoring every year since since the Blackwater event and we're seeing a gradual recovery in numbers so yeah they're occurring at slightly more sites and and the abundance is going up and we've done some population modeling given the characteristics of the species and it's showing it may take up to upwards of 50 years for numbers to recover back in those areas that were impacted. 50 years to recover the population. This is Off Track. I'm Ann Jones, and I'm at the T intersection of the Goulburn River and the Murray River. The Cray population has been affected over time by lots of things. River regulation over the last two centuries has contributed to the decline. All the locks and the dams and the things that have altered flows have definitely had an impact. Plus, the Blackwater event that we've just been hearing about. And in the past, there has also been significant fishing of the Crays. There was even a commercial fishery at one point. Um, Jamie. G'day Jamie. Nice to meet you. <laughs> nice to meet you. Roger. G'day Roger. Nice to meet you. Anthony. And I'm Anne. Yeah. Um, and you're all from Barham? These three blokes, yeah. all fishermen yeah, from so Barham, have taken an extended lunch break away from work today to come and help introduce the Murray Crays to this stretch of river. Now these blokes have fished for Cray since boyhood. It was a winter tradition. Well it was just a normal Sunday you'd go out the go out the forest with the kids and well yeah back then mum and dad I suppose <laughs> get out there for the day light a lot of fire on the river chuck a fishing rod in take the little tinny out chuck a few cray pots in and just spend the day out there crane and cutting a bit of wood for home and yeah, yeah. and that's what we used to do and now we're not doing it because it's closed at home at the moment so the kids are sort of missing out on that I suppose you could yeah. say yeah you're not let, you can go out there and go fishing of course but yeah they're just missing out on that cray fishing What's what's so special about the cray fishing? Why does that make a difference? Oh, it's just a good family fun day, I suppose. It's just good to get out there and better than the kids hanging around the bloody street or <laughs> something like that. So yeah. get them out the bush and yeah, it's just yeah. a good day for everyone. And your crays are only around for so many months of the year. Like they're only around three months a year and then they're gone again. They're mm. around in the cold time of the year. So yeah, that's just good. That's <laughs> one of the memories I've got as a kid fishing with um, as a family activity is. Now the excitement of um, pulling up a cray net and seeing, first of all, you just see the white claws, the white spiky claws, and then the rest of the body comes up and you wonder, well, have I got two or three or one, <laughs> one large one, how big are they going to be? And they're like uh, mini prehistoric animals and uh, just leave a lasting memory and, and um, 
you know, when I've taken other kids out and I've got older and and um, crayed and you just see the look on kids' faces and uh, it's remarkable. It's just, you know, you don't see that when they open Christmas presents or Easter eggs. It's remarkable and, yeah, it's just we're missing out on that, that cultural, social activity um, because there's not much point going out in winter fishing because the fish don't bite but the crays yeah. bite and um, it's just something that we always used to go with. You know, all your friends and family you'd sort of go out craying for the afternoon and it doesn't happen anymore. So why is it that you've come along today then? From my point of view, I work in land care and a lot of the community in uh, my neck of the woods want to sort of be involved in a social activity. So I'm looking at citizen science opportunities for our community to, you know, not catch and, and keep the craze for um, consumption, but to be involved in science, catch them and release them and um, give some data back, but at the same time have that social activity that's important in our community. In terms of your social activity, does it actually matter if you eat them or not? Can you just catch them and release them and is it the same? Well, they are yeah. nice eating and we enjoy yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we all enjoy eating. Yeah, no, catch, and catch and release, yeah. yeah. No yeah. worries about that at all. Yeah. Kids, yeah. kids would love to do that. We'd love yeah. to do that. But yeah. it's better yeah, than right. not crying. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. It's extremely important in yeah. winter time when you know, we don't have... You know, we don't have um, a lot of other services in our area and we've made a considered lifestyle choice to live where we are for, you know, because we love fishing in the bush and, and those sorts of things and we're happy with that. Yeah. But, you know, when those sort of privileges get taken away or because of um, other environmental reasons and, um, yeah, it's, it's disappointing. Yeah. Um, so what's the biggest one you've ever caught then? Oh, I don't know, you don't catch and tell, do you? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, really? Oh, you can catch them like right up around 15 centimetres. Now, there are regulations around where and when you can fish for cray. There's a bag limit and a size limit. They can't be taken too big or too small, and the females with eggs in their undercarriage must be left undisturbed entirely. Did you, did you get spiked? Did I? Oh, yeah, you get spiked all the time. Martin Asmus is a fisheries scientist with the New South Wales Fisheries and he explains that the rules on bag limits and the timing of the crave fishing season are now the same in New South Wales and Victoria, which wasn't always the case and was cause for confusion. I would say on the whole, people have certainly, they're not against the regulations. There's been regulations, you know, since late 80s. They've always been there. Uh, so each year the compliance guys do targeted operations. Um, my understanding is it's probably one of the less compliant fisheries. Certainly there are people that uh, yeah, push the envelope and keep more than they're allowed um, and they keep undersized crayfish. So the regulations as they are, you know, are science-based. Um, they're based around that, that reproductive output and, and maturity of, of, the, uh, of the crays. So, yeah, they're there for a reason. Um, they're the sort of animal that sometimes falls under the radar as well because you see them every now and then um, you just assume that they're still there and so yeah there's a possibility that they just sort of disappear one day and you don't notice yeah that's right you know what no one told me is what a beautiful color they are uh, yeah and, and they're very variable so sometimes it's in relation to what substrate they're on so if they're on a real sort of reddy yellow clay um, they'll get that colour. Generally it's this sort of bluey grey. Um, and again, sometimes their spines are a little bit smoother. This guy's got really sharp spines. Um, their moulting can be a little bit, you know, different and unique sometimes. But, uh, and then, in the, where the crux of where little bits of shell join each other is this beautiful coral. Yeah, yep. Yeah. 
just stunning. Nick Whiterod from the Glenelg Nature Trust has been undertaking a survey of Murray Cray right up and down this river, and it means he's been spending a lot of time out on the water. turtle when we were here last time, it was just, just sunning itself, it was real earlier in the morning and it was pretty cold and we said, oh, what's that on there? And we go over and it's just sitting down there, wow. sunning itself. Today is the first day of translocation. 200 crayfish have been caught upstream by New South Wales fisheries workers and transported here, to this part of the Murray where crays have not been recorded since the Blackwater event. Dr Trevor Daly is a Senior Fisheries Manager of Threatened Species with the New South Wales Department of Primary Industries. And we're going to continue doing this for the next four years, about 200 a year, relocating them, so what we call translocations, to move them from an area where they're abundant to an area where they're, they're not occurring and to establish a new population or re-establish. Because if you left it to nature, by the time they work their way down the Murray River, it could take 10 years, 20 years for them to physically walk or swim down to this area. So really what we've done today is we've, we've put them in a vehicle and given them a, a lift down the road. And now we're hoping that that will then mean that this population in this area will recover a lot quicker. What are the potential negatives of translocating a population? You've got to be careful about things like biosecurity, diseases, genetics. There's always a risk when you move things around. We're moving at this stage, we're moving them just from one area of the Murray catchment to another. So technically they could walk down there or swim down there themselves. So all we're doing was sort of fast tracking their movement. So we don't think and we've assessed that that's not a, a biosecurity risk. So how long have you been involved with um, fisheries conservation? I've been working for fisheries for about 15 years and in conservation for about 10 of those and in threatened species for about the last three. Can you remember the first time that you saw a Murray Cray? Um, today's the first day I've seen it. Really? <laughs> yeah, because I'm responsible for threatened fish all over New South Wales, marine fish and freshwater. So I made an effort to come down and, and actually help out with the translocations. So, yeah, it's oh. been, been a real eye-opener. I've seen them in, on videos and, and on photos, of course. What was, was your nice impression? To get my, well, it was nice to get my hands on one at last and, and release it. So that was good, yeah. Yeah, I was always a bit conscious of the claws, though. Yeah. <laughs> when I'm putting it in the water, I'm thinking, don't let it bite you, because apparently they're extremely painful if they get hold of you mm. with their claws. And so now you're holding two. We've got number 200. Number 200, the last one for this year. So they're about to go back in. I think they're ready to. So, um, yeah, it's a pretty exciting moment to put them in. It's great. Good culmination of all that work we've been doing to get them to this stage, but... I guess it's not, it's just a start for them in a way that they're going to be starting in a new habitat here and most people probably have heard of a Murray Cray before but may not have seen them and they've historically been under the water when people are skiing over summer times or on houseboats and, and just going about their business and they may not necessarily have seen them and uh, yeah but once you've seen them you never forget them, they're really impressive looking animals. Nick Whiterod puts number 200 down. A cray. She's maybe seven years old and she's an immature female. And she's raising her claws, waving them side to side aggressively. And then as soon as she's on the ground, she moves impressively quickly backwards towards the water and sinks in a flurry of bubbles. You can see her white claws through the water until that murky murray covers her up 
and she's gone off to find a craggy log to call home and to hopefully have thousands of babies in the near future. It's been a year since number 200 was released into the Murray and Nick Whiterod has been out to monitor the site. He says that they recaptured four individuals at the site, which is actually the same number as when they sampled three months after release. Encouragingly, he says that one of the individuals was a mature female with eggs, which indicates that they've started to reproduce at the site. So all in all, he's happy with the result and the Cray team is following up with the release of another 200 crayfish about now. I mean, some of these crayfish will be older than some of the people listening to this. Well, exactly. I would like to say they're older than me, but unfortunately (laughs) not for um, some of the listeners, definitely. I'm Ann Jones, and that's almost it for this episode of Off Track. Remember to meet me here at the same time next time, because that's when I'll take you somewhere else. They haven't taken off? (laughs) No. Is is it true that they will take off a finger? Oh, it it hurts, I know that much. Yeah? (laughs) Hurts a lot. But we can um, make them go to sleep too, that's an interesting thing. Really? Yeah. (laughs) You rub the back of their head. And you can make them go to sleep. So we might have to show you that one. This I've got to see. (laughs) (laughs) That's old. The crayfish whisperer. (laughs) 